Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm your guest host, Emmy Vadness, filling in for Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the embodied quantum mind. My guest is Dr. Thomas Verney, who is a psychiatrist who founded the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health and served as its president for eight years. He is editor-in-chief of the Journal of Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health and is author of Inside Groups, a Practical Guide to Encounter Groups and Group Therapy, The Secret Life of the Unborn Child with John Kelly that has been published in 27 countries. Pre- and Perinatal Psychology, an Introduction. Parenting Your Unborn Child. Nurturing the Unborn Child with Pamela Weintraub. Gifts of Our Fathers. Heartfelt Remembrances of Fathers and Grandfathers. Tomorrow's Baby. The Art and Science of Parenting from Conception Through Infancy. Pre-Parenting. Nurturing Your Child from Conception. And The Embodied Mind. Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness, and Our Bodies, which is the topic of our conversation today. Dr. Verney is located in Stratford, Ontario, in Canada, and now we'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Dr. Verney. It's such a pleasure to have you with us on New Thinking Aloud today. It's a pleasure to be here. Much of your career has focused on the life of the unborn child and helping with parenting. How did you move from that to studying and researching and reporting on the embodied quantum mind? It has been a kind of natural progression because when I wrote The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, uh, in it was published in 1981. Uh, so when I started writing it in 1979, uh, at that time, uh, there was some research that showed that children at the age of six months after conception, in other words, at the end of the second trimester, uh, would be able to lay down some rudimentary memories. But also, I was getting reports from mothers and grown-up children remembering their births, being regressed back to earlier times, that some of these children, some of these people, remembered things that happened to them before that age. In other words, all the way back to conception. And so that was not supported by science. And uh, because I have always had sort of a scientific bent of mind, uh, that bothered me. It bothered me that there were these reports that at least scientifically could not be explained. And so that has always been sort of in the back of my mind. And then seven years ago, I came across this report by a French physician about a 44-year-old man who went to see his physician because he had a weakness in his left leg. And so they did all kinds of laboratory tests. They did an x-ray of his head. And to everybody's astonishment, they found that the man had virtually no brain. He had a thin crust 
of cerebral tissue, um, and the rest was water, cerebrospinal fluid. We call it hydrocephalus in medicine. And so this man was 44 years old. He was a married man, father of two children, and working in the French civil service. For all intents and purposes, he was a normal person. So I thought to myself, how is this possible? This does not make sense. And um, I've always been kind of a logical person. I'm a chess player. I love playing chess. Uh, I'm analytic. And when something doesn't make sense, it bothers me. <laughs> and so I started looking into the literature. And I found, again to my surprise, that actually there were a lot of reports, particularly of children, for example, who suffered of epilepsy and uh, who had surgery, and sometimes they had half of their brains removed, sometimes more than half of their brains removed, and they continued to act and behave and think normally. There were also reports of adults having brain tissue removed, large parts of their brain, and acting normally. So that's when I first thought that our bodies must have some kind of a backup system, you know, just like your computer, you know, has a backup system in the clouds or whatever. There has to be a backup system in the body. And so that's when I started researching um, what I call cellular intelligence. In other words, that all the cells in our bodies, all the tissues and organs which are made up of cells, everything in the world really that lives um, is made up of cells, uh, that all these cells combine together and act as a backup system to, to, to the brain. And so then it took me, um, it took me seven years to write the book, The Embodied Mind, and um, I read something like 5,000 journals and books in preparation for it. Again, all of them, you know, very hard scientific papers. And then I uh, quote about 500 of them in my book. And so I put all of that knowledge together. And, you know, I found that, that evolution really is, is a master at preserving biological bits that benefits survival, and that we are really not that different, you know, our human beings are not that different from lower animals, which are not that different from the simplest bacteria uh, in the world. Uh, it's the same cells, and very often the same genes, which have been repurposed. So yes, it's not the same, but essentially, it's the same. And so, you know, it's, what I would like to emphasize is that cognition has been a slow climb, you know. It's not a magical leap along this evolutionary path. And so I think that science and religion combined have made this, this huge mistake of putting men sort of at the top of creation and in a sense looking down and looking down upon other creatures in the world. Uh, and I really don't think we should do that. I think that we are all connected. And um, I think that we should respect all living creatures.
right? As humans, we tend to think that we are the top animals. Yes. And in your research, you showed that consciousness, you know, we tend to think of it up in, quote, the brain, or because we have many of our sensory systems in the head, we tend to think that that it's all coming from this region of our body. But in your research, you showed that consciousness really resides in all aspects and various aspects of the body, all the way down to the cellular and the quanta level. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, if you look at, for example, research on, on end of life, uh, and uh, near-death experiences, for example, you know, um, I, I had one, I, I was, I witnessed one myself uh, uh, when I was a young intern um, at, uh, at, at a hospital, St. Michael's Hospital here in, uh, well, not here, but in Toronto, because I live outside of Toronto. And uh, one of my patients died right there in front of me, his heart stopped beating. There was no doubt about it. He was dead. And I was taught that when that happens, you take a syringe full of adrenaline and you just plunge it into the person's heart because they are dead. It doesn't really matter. Um, it, you're not causing them any pain, or at least that's what we were taught. Well, I did that. And then I called, you know, alarm and nurses and doctors started coming in. Um, in about five minutes, five to 10 minutes, uh, the man regained consciousness. But this is the amazing part, which I will always, always remember. Uh, he started, he started to describe what happened in that room and he described it accurately, but he described it in a way that he was seeing everything from above like from the ceiling down, not from where he was lying, but from a ceiling down. So that was the first experience that I had personally, uh, that in a sense, I guess, looking back up on it now, you know, now that I'm speaking to you, I've never really thought of this before, um, but perhaps in a way it put me on a trajectory uh, towards... Uh, towards a different view of the mind and consciousness. You know, I've, I've never, honestly, God, I've never thought of this before. I kind of buried it, you know, in the back of my mind. But now that we are talking about it, it seems to me quite possible, you know, that it sort of put the first seeds of doubt in my mind about consciousness. Because like all medical doctors, you know, I was taught that when the heart stops and the, the, the brain stops, you're dead. That's it. And yet, you know, there is there is research now coming from many parts of the world, and you're probably more familiar with it because you work on this uh, a lot more than I do. But from all parts of the world, that the, that the mind is not totally dependent on the brain. Um, as I put it in my book, you know, uh, the mind is more than the brain. Uh, I don't know what that is. I will not go as far as to say that it's A or B or C, but surely it is more than just the brain. You know, most scientists, most of my colleagues believe that the mind is an epiphenomenon of the brain, meaning that it's a byproduct of the brain, just like bile is a byproduct of, of uh, 
of, of the liver or, or urine is a byproduct of the kidneys, so the mind is a byproduct of the brain. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, they're not the same at all. I mean, you really don't have to be very clever to see that that is, you know, you cannot compare urine to the mind. It's just silly. Um, so I think that, you know, that's where I got more involved with the quantum mind, because um, if you just look at Newtonian science and, um, and everything is measurable and things which are not measurable are not important, uh, then, uh, you know, you cannot make, uh, you cannot make sense out of the mind. You, you have to go beyond Newtonian science to come even close to understanding the mind. Well, thank you for sharing that story about working with your patient who you revived and, and brought back essentially to life. Did that patient share with you anything about their experience? Do you recall uh, sometimes when people have near-death experiences, they describe that they want to sometimes stay where they are often frequently and that yes. they're told either that they need to come back or that they choose to come back because they want to do something here on earth. He did not because it was in a hospital environment and I was an intern and I was busy looking after God knows how many people at the same time. So did not have uh, the convenience uh, the luxury of, of, of talking to him again. But in terms of what you have just said, actually, I myself, again, had that experience. I was not, I was not dying, but I was, doing, um, I was doing a workshop on rebirthing. Have you ever heard of rebirthing? Yes, I have. So I was doing a workshop on rebirthing and uh, with a group of people all around me, and we were lying on the floor, and uh, there was some music playing, and I just went out, just the way you describe it. I moved towards the light, and it was the most un unimaginable bright light, but not blinding. It was very bright, but not blinding, and I just felt this incredible love coming out of it. And just like you say, I wanted to stay there forever. I didn't want to go. It was so beautiful. I could hear people around me, you know, breathing and talking and crying and whatever. But at the same time, I was up there in, in the light. And then I thought that, you know, um, I can't stay here forever. You know, I have family, I have friends, I have loved ones. And I chose to come back. Yeah. So I, ha I had that experience. And again, it's, you know, it's one of those experiences that stays with you forever once you have had it. And, and you know it's true because you didn't make it up like you were there, right? So, you know, you, sometimes you, you, when I talk to scientists, there's a very capital S uh, who are very, very full of their importance, uh, they would just kind of look at you as if you were crazy if you tell them this kind of a story, right? Uh, the same thing the same thing applies to heart transplants, you know. Um, as I describe in my book, there are many people who have had a change of personality which uh, appears to be part of the personality of the donor. Uh, and when I talked to a cardiac surgeon a few months ago, 
I said, do you ever tell your patients before surgery when you're doing heart transplants that they might have a change in personality? And he said, oh, no, never. No, no. <sighs> so, you know, um, don't complicate things with facts, right? <laughs> I would love to talk about the heart, but just to go back for a moment, the rebirthing, because of your incredible background and really being a leader in the pre and perinatal, uh, from conception all the way up to birth and beyond, um, can you share a little bit about what rebirthing is, that process you went through? And I think it's phenomenal that you then were literally born again, it sounds like, from your near-death experience through that process. I suppose so. You know, I, I'm certainly not in any way, um, in any way, uh, an expert on, on rebirthing. It was just a couple of workshops that I attended, but essentially, it, they they teach you to breathe in a certain way, which is very similar to uh, the way Indian uh, yogis uh, breathe, and uh, it's kind of a connected breathing, and then. I suppose there is a suggestion there that you are going to regress to some important parts of your life. They don't tell you where, usually. And um, in, a, in a sense, you know, the suggestion and being in a group and everybody doing the same thing uh, creates certain expectations. And, uh, and then as a result of that, uh, you may have certain experiences which in most cases are pretty good, not in all cases, because sometimes people can go back to, uh, for example, an attempted abortion by your mother while you're in the womb, uh, or, or perhaps mother or father saying that um, we don't want this child, you know, this was a big mistake, things like that. So it's not just positive facts uh, or events uh, or memories that come out, you know, it could be negative, but in in my case it was it was just positive um which in a sense brings us to another point which is important and that is the power of your thoughts and you know it's again one of the things that i write about in the embodied mind because because if hypnosis for example or self hypnosis and suggestion they all can be very powerful uh, therapeutic uh, tools. And we can do that to, to ourselves. There have been research studies by people such as Masaro Emoto, um, even Dean Radin with Gail Heisen and others, where they've demonstrated that thoughts impact the substance, the water. Uh, in the case of Emoto with Dean Radin, he's probably worked with many uh, different components, but the couple I'm familiar with is chocolate and tea, where intentions or thoughts are put into these substances. And could you share a little bit about what you've shown or what you found in your research with these thoughts and how they can impact all the way to the cellular level of our consciousness? Actually, I had an interview a couple of months ago uh, with uh, one of the foremost um, supporters of Emoto in, in Japan, and uh, that was very interesting. Um, but essentially, you can take this in many different ways. Um, we know, for example, going, to, going back to prenatal psychology, 
we know, for example, that things that are said um, after a baby is born or very early on without any thought can have long-term, long-term toxic effects if they are negative uh, comments. Um, when I, when I was writing The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, I, I visited a uh, neonatal intensive care unit in Toronto, and uh, there were 36 little um, sort of hospital beds. Isolettes? That's it. That's it. Isolettes. Thank you. Um, and um, half of them, half of them had little name tags on them, like, call me Emmy or call me George or call me Joe, whatever, half of them. The other half did not. I said to the head nurse who was taking me around, I said, why are so many of these kids nameless? And she said, because their parents don't want to get too close to them in case they die. Mm. Now, I can assure you, I'm, I would be willing to bet my house and everything that I own on the fact that the mortality and morbidity among those children without names was much higher than the ones with names, okay? Because the ones with names were receiving the energy, the loving energy from their parents, and the other ones were not. And that can be tremendously healing, right? We all know that. We all know that. Um, you know, uh, once I was, uh, I was lecturing in Spain and I needed to go to emergency because of an emergency that happened to me. And uh, they were going to perform a very painful um, intervention. And the nurse put out her hand and I grabbed her hand, and I tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get emotional now because it just helped so much to be able to hold on to another human being while this procedure was being carried out, you know, makes a huge difference. So, you know, coming back to emotions and, 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 and the feelings that we get from other people, so I, ha I, had, I had a couple of friends, and that's described also in the chapter there on, um, on, on the mind and the brain in, in my book. I had, I had a couple of friends who put up two jars on their piano uh, filled with boiled rice. And they were very close together. And so they got the same sunlight, the same temperature, everything the same. And, you know, to, to one of them, I'm just going to look up not to, not to mislead you. So to what the right and the left, they, they daily directed their voices saying, thank you, you're beautiful. To what the right and the right, they said, you fool, you stink. Within three months, the one on the left that got positive information was almost the same, hardly rotted at all. The other one was already half black, rotting like crazy. And that continued over the next few months. So I say to you, if boiled rice can react that way to emotionally laden, charged voices, wouldn't human beings react similarly, right? 
So, yeah. you know, what we say to other people is just so important and hardly anybody realizes that. Yes, yes. So what do you think is happening in that experiment? <laughs> That's a good question. That is a very good question. Uh, I think I think what is happening in that very in in that experiment is that on a cellular level, you know, on a cellular level, um, the cells are reacting to positive and negative energy because actually, you know, our voices, emotions, that all carries energy, and so when you get positive energy, and we don't know. We really don't know the first thing about this. I mean, I wish I could be more scientific and more specific, but um, obviously positive energy uh, energizes you. You know, um, it, it genetically, it would certainly, you know, improve all the positive genes, all the genes that are good for you, and it would decrease the impact of, of the negative genes. And so it's the same thing that happens to the unborn child, you know, within the mother, that when the mother sends positive messages, I love you, uh, I care about you, I look forward to seeing you when you are born, messages like that, that baby is going to benefit from it. And when we talk about adults, I mean, you know, um, if, uh, if you speak to... Uh, to your children or to your friends in a positive way, you are encouraging growth and, and positivity in their minds and their bodies. On the other hand, you know, hostile encounters make people sick. In your example of when you were having a person holding your hand during a crisis in your life, my, my mother had a similar experience when she was dealing with her cancer and she was going to multiple doctor appointments, meeting with the surgeon even and so many people. She told me that one day she went in and she was waiting for the doctor to come in and the, I think it was the medical assistant came in and took her vitals and asked how my mother was doing and my mother replied and the person held her hand and my mother said she started crying because it was the first time that she felt that she was not being treated but like a piece of meat in the healthcare system. Exactly, yes. And it made her feel better. It made her feel better. She said it was the first time she experienced any compassion through that entire process. Yes, yes. So, you know, if nothing else, I hope that your listeners your listeners listen and learn something from that because that is such an important message. That brings us to the heart and how for millennia the heart has been thought to be the seat of emotions and love. And can you share because in your research because there's even evidence that the heart has its own nervous system and has its own really brain, if you will. That's right. That's right. Yes, yes. Uh, that is absolutely correct. It has its own nervous system, of course, uh, which makes it possible, actually, for heart transplants to work. Because when you do a heart transplant, uh, you take the old heart out, which means that all the connections are disconnected from the old heart, right? Because you cut. You cut the nerves, you cut the arteries, all of that is cut, and you put the new heart in, 
but there's no way you, you, you can you can connect the arteries to the heart, but you cannot cannot connect the nerves to the heart. Okay, they have to grow in. So the reason that the heart is able to continue to beat in the new recipient is because it has a nervous system of its own. So that but equally important and perhaps more important from our standpoint is the fact that like you said, the heart has its own memory neurons. There are at least 40,000 memory neurons in, in the heart. And the heart has the largest electromagnetic uh, force of any organ. It's, it's something like a thousand times stronger than the electromagnetic force of the brain. So the heart is, puts out incredibly strong vibrations and very often when two people two people's hearts sink then they fall in love or at least are attracted to each other their hearts are really attracted to each other and so uh it's really really not surprising that uh some heart transplant recipients will report on the fact that quite unconsciously, without having had any information about the donor, uh, they begin to have likes and dislikes and personality of 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 the donor. And so, you know, uh, I, I I I'm thinking of the case report of one young woman who was like totally uh, queer by her own admission, uh, didn't want to have anything to do with men. Uh, when she got the transfer uh, of, of, of a heart from a man who was heterosexual, she suddenly became heterosexual and became interested in other men. And her diet totally changed. Uh, another person could feel the impact of the motorcycle accident that the donor was involved in and complained about that without having the slightest idea that that's how he died. So all of these reports which have been which have been uh supported by evidence all of these reports would suggest and support my theory that cells contain memories and that they can be transferred from one person to another. And uh, the way I got involved in that particular aspect of research was through some very, very interesting experiments done on planaria by um, Professor Michael Levin at Tufts University. And if you ever want to interview uh, one of the brightest guys in the United States, interview Michael Levin, Tufts University. He is amazing. Uh, he, I think he's the brightest person I ever met, and, and he does amazing research. And about ten years ago, he did this research on planaria when he when he taught planaria uh, about how to run certain mazes or where to where to live, things like that. And then cut them up into tiny little pieces. And what is amazing about planaria is that they can regrow their whole body just from a tiny piece. Of the old body, so these new new planaria were regrown, and they remembered 
largely, you know, 80%, 90% of what they were taught when they were whole. There's more evidence that it's not just in the brain and that memory is throughout cellular, throughout the whole biological system. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and, and this only worked when the brain was also regrown. So you need to have both the body and the brain working together. And I think, you know, um, I'm often asked, well, you know, what is, what is the significance of, uh, of, of this theory that you are proposing about the embodied mind? And the significance is that, you know, for many, many centuries, we have lived in a patriarchal society. And patriarchal societies are hierarchical, and everything is from the top down, okay? It's the head of the family, the head of the tribe, uh, the head of government. Uh, rich people live on top of hills. Poor people live down below. It's so hierarchical. The army, of course, is a perfect example of hierarchy. Well, science has kind of absorbed that same kind of system, and so science quite unconsciously, I think, has continued to regard the head as the most important part, the brain as the most important part, and everything below is secondary. And of course, then you have the church, which of course suspects anything along the lower chakras, right? So we mustn't talk about that. They don't exist, preferably. Uh, that's only for making children, perhaps, and that's about it. So when you have this kind of a disregard for the body, and in a sense, even assuming that the body is bad, okay, like the brain is good, the body is bad because, you know, you get cancer of the bowels, right? You um, And uh, you get all kinds of uh, sexually transmitted diseases, etc., etc. The body is bad, the brain is good. So we need to get away from that, okay? We need to have a more holistic approach to our bodies so that the brain is never disconnected from the body, the body is not disconnected from the brain. That's, that is the importance of, of my message. Right, and it seems to be that nature versus nurture. In your research, which seems to be more dominant or do you feel it's a blend? I think it's a blend. I think anybody who tells you, you know, that schizophrenia is 70% genetic and 30% environmental doesn't know what they are talking about, okay? Uh, I think you could talk about that before epigenetics, but now that we have totally discovered epigenetics, it has been proven, there's no doubt about it, uh, we know that we are born with certain genes, and that's fine, they cannot be changed, but the expression of genes, in other words, which are active and which are asleep, is constantly changing, okay? Mm -hmm. And so it, we, we, have, we have these little switches on our genome, and the switches are guided by the environment. So whether you will develop schizophrenia or not, even if you have the genes for it, doesn't really matter. What matters is whether the switches for those particular genes are switched on or off. And that's why, that's why the environment is so important. I mean, everybody knows that nature, for example, is better than, than living in the core of a city where you're breathing in, you know, all the fumes and all the toxins and all the noise. All of those things are really very 
anti-health, as you well know, I'm sure. Uh, so um, it's uh, it's it's really not nature versus um, nurture. It 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 is a combination of the two, and because of that, because of that, we have the power. We have the power, and we should use it to influence our health. Absolutely. Can you share what epigenetics is for those who are listening where that might be a new term for them? Epigenetics um, refers to uh, the part of genetics that has to do with the how our genes respond to the environment. And we, we, we have many, many fewer genes than it was supposed a long time ago. We have no more than 20 to 26,000 genes. At one time, we were thought to have like many, many more, like 50,000, 60,000 genes. No, it's down to about 24 to 26, and half of them are really, really uh, control the brain and the development of the brain. Um, but... Our genome, which contains the genes, but it also contains a lot of other proteins. And what it contains are these methyl groups, what's called methyl groups. I don't have a better name for it. Methyl groups and acetyl groups, okay? And those are the switches. And the methyl group turns, turns genes off, and the acetyl groups turn them on. And, and so what we are learning in epigenetics is what kinds of environmental factors will turn genes on and off. So it's not a question of changing the genes. We cannot change them, uh, perhaps over evolution of thousands and thousands of years, some of the genes get changed. But essentially what we can change is whether they are activated, fully activated, partially activated, or whether they're just going to sleep and be deactivated. So that's why epigenetics is so important. So when a child, for example, is born and, um, and, and it, whether, for example, it is born uh, by cesarean section or born naturally, uh, it will make a difference in terms of epigenetics because when the baby is born by cesarean section, it's going to pick up a lot of bacteria which are on the mother's abdomen, even though she's sanitized and all that. Uh, but they will be still picking up bacteria from the environment, uh, which then is going to affect their expression of genes. Whereas if they are born vaginally, they are going to pick up lactobacilli from the vagina, which is very good because it will help them to uh, absorb the mother's milk. So all of these things will be very, very important epigenetically speaking. And so... I guess just the simplest ways to say epigenetics is about the influence of the environment on your genes. And that's something that you can actually control to some extent. You're saying that we are born with a certain type or set of genes that we've uh, inherited and that the epigenetics is our environment, as you just described. Yes. The physical environment, but also maybe the emotional or psychological environment externally from our parents and teachers and family, extended family, but also our internal environment and maybe even our own self-talk. Let me give you a very quick uh, study on that. Uh, it was done in New York. 84 
hotel maids were being studied by a psychologist from Harvard University. And um, half of them were, half of, they were divided into two groups, and half of them were told that the daily work that they did lived up to the definition of physical exercise by the uh, whoever is in charge of health in the United States. Um, and the other half were not told that. After one month, uh, the health of both groups was measured. The, the women who were told that their daily work was really exercise, was really good physical exercise, their blood pressure dropped, their weight dropped, all kinds of indices of health improved. They did not work any differently. They just believed that what they did was good for them. So that belief changed the genes, which then changed the blood pressure and all those other things. So we can constantly do that. And uh, so, again, you know, it's one of the things that listeners really need to take to heart because if you think positively, uh, and I don't mean in a kind of a, you know, unreal way, but, you know, based on good information, you know, if, if you think positively, you know, today I've exercised, I've been out in nature, this is good for me. If you can sort of absorb that and really feel it in your cellular consciousness, it's going to be good for you. Yeah. And that changes your genes, like all those thoughts change the expression of your genes. So that's where epigenetics comes in. And can you share a little bit about body armoring and how our thoughts, our suppressed thoughts can impact us and what we can do about that to live better, healthier lives? We keep a lot of, um, a lot of trauma uh, in our bodies. Um, hidden away in cells. And uh, there, there are many different ways in which those things can be perhaps brought out uh, in a therapeutic way, you know. Uh, certainly, you know, body work in terms of um, massage, deep tissue massage, uh, all kinds of other ways of doing that. The first step would be to realize that you have that, you know, the first step would be to realize that you are armored in some way, perhaps because of your posture, or perhaps because you have always pain in certain part of the body, or you can't feel anything in a certain part of the body. So becoming aware, I think, is the first step. Uh, and then there are many different ways that one can resolve those issues. It can be through talk therapy or it can be through body work um, and uh, through rebirthing. I mean, there are many different ways. One of the things I think that we need to remember is that not one way does not work for everybody, okay? Uh, you mentioned guided imagery, for example, at the beginning. Uh, guided imagery worked very well for me. Hypnosis did not work for me at all in terms of, you know, gaining more insight into my unconscious. Uh, you have to find out what works for you. 
two things about that. If you want to gain insight, if you want to somehow improve your mental health, uh, you may need to see different therapists or different approaches. And the one thing that we really need to watch out for is, you know, uh, that many therapists only have one hammer. And so every problem becomes a nail and you don't want to be a nail. So, you know, if you go to a psychoanalyst, for example, you know, he will, he or she will treat you with psychoanalysis and that may be totally wrong for you or even totally wrong for the problem that you have. So just be aware of the fact that you have to be selective and, um, and, and sometimes experiment and may have to go and see two or three different people until you find the person with whom you are on the same wavelength. Yeah, good point that everybody is literally different and unique on what will help them with what they're dealing with. And in your research, you also showed that the gut microbiome can impact mental health. Yes, yes, very important. Another very, very important. We There are so many drugs, for example, uh, which work or do not work because of the microbiome, okay? For example, statins, just, just, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I was just reading a report on statins. Uh, statins, you know, are being used by millions of, um, of Americans uh, and, and other people all over the world in order to um, decrease their cholesterol. Uh, but they don't work on some people. And so research has been done, and it shows that some people have bacteria in their gastrointestinal tract which destroys statins, and so for those people, statins don't work. There's nothing wrong with the statins. It's their microbiome. Well, Dr. Thomas Verney, this has been a very uh, enlightening and educational conversation. I know there's so much more that we could talk about. You put together so much great information in your book. Are there any last thoughts or comments you'd like to share about the embodied quantum mind? No, thank you very much for a lovely, lovely interview. And uh, no, I think that we touched on some of the major points. Thank you so much for being with me today. You're welcome. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Thank you.